Mention Alaska, and people's eyes light up. America's last frontier offers some of the most spectacular natural scenery anywhere. It's a dream destination for many, but high prices and the logistics of getting around our largest state can complicate dreams of traveling through Alaska. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're pondering glaciers, grizzlies, northern lights, and spectacular cruise vistas as we explore Alaska. It's, I mean, it quite literally is bigger than life. The mountains are bigger, the rivers are bigger, the personalities are bigger than life. Lonely Planet guidebook author Aaron Spitzer joins us in a moment to take your calls and share some Alaska travel tips. A week's drive up the Alaska Highway may sound like the ultimate road trip, but imagine doing it with a carload of kids. So, later in the hour, Jeff Campbell joins us to explore happy road tripping with the family. Sorting through the wonders of Alaska and road tripping anywhere with the family. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Imagine cruising through southeast Alaska, getting close to those humpback whales, bald eagles, and majestic glaciers. Or perhaps you'd like to see North America's tallest mountain in all its snow-capped glory. Or drop by a town that could make you think you're in a revival of northern exposure. Either way, a trip to Alaska promises to enlarge your world. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Lonely Planet's Aaron Spitzer guides us through America's last frontier. And... Jeff Campbell joins us later in the hour with practical tips for planning a road trip with the family. Our itinerary is full of possibilities today, from your own backyard to the wilds of Alaska, on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're not going to any fun in the sun and dreamy palm trees. We're going far north, and we've got on the phone from Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories of Canada, Aaron Spitzer. And Aaron has spent his life with a passion for things Arctic. I mean, even as a kid, he talked his mom into driving him uh, all the way up into the Northwest Territories of Canada from uh, a place where he was raised in, in the United States. Fascinating to read about your, your interest in the Arctic. Aaron, thanks for joining us. No problem, Rick. Good to be with you. Now, you actually talked to your mom when you were 13 years old and had taken a road trip up to the Northwest Territories? Actually, we flew up to Yellowknife from Indianapolis, Indiana, which is where I was born and raised. And then oh. from there, we rented a, a rattly Ford LTD and did a road trip down from Yellowknife throughout much of the Northwest Territories or what, what roads were available at that time up here. And was it a good trip? It was a remarkable trip. And if I hadn't already been... Uh, wedded to the notion of living in the North for the rest of my life at, at that young age. It certainly sold me on the idea. So uh, lo and behold, 10 years after that trip, I ended up out of university. I ended up moving North on a what's, what's turned out to be a permanent basis. And today we're talking to you uh, via CBC studio in Yellowknife. That's above the Arctic Circle? No, actually, we're probably about, uh, oh, maybe 150 miles, 200 miles or so south of the Arctic Circle, but certainly feels awfully Arctic. Now, why would you choose to live in Yellowknife? Rick, I guess it's uh, it's almost like being able to travel back in time in some ways, but there still is a frontier if you travel geographically. Being able to live in Yellowknife is, is being able to live in a place that isn't fully settled, where things are still sort of dynamic and in flux and cultures are colliding. And I think it sort of replicates in some ways, in some ways not the, the frontier North America that a lot of us kind of read about and pine for, but few people kind of realize that on the northern fringes of North America, it, it still exists in a way. And you've traveled a lot throughout the uh, northern reaches, the Spitsbergen or Svalbard in Norway. Mm -hmm. And of course, you've written a guidebook on Alaska. Well, let's, let's talk about Alaska here. I live in Seattle, and Seattle's known as the gateway to Alaska. And all of my life, our, our travel section has seemed like a, a guide to Alaska. Everybody's got this passion for Alaska. What is it, in your assessment, about Alaska that has this allure? It's, it, I mean, it quite literally is bigger than life. You know, the, the mountains are bigger, the rivers are bigger, the personalities are bigger than life. I, I don't know, in this age of uh, everybody liking what's extreme, Alaska is the extremity of the extreme, I think. Wow. Now, you said personalities are bigger than life. Are there actually characters, like you always think of these eccentric mountain kind of people in the old days, can that survive in the 21st century? 
to be honest, that's what, when I moved to Alaska initially, uh, sold me on the place. It wasn't just the access to nature or, you know, having Mount Denali kind of looming overhead or having wildlife roaming into your backyard. It was the fact that there really is a wide open spirit in that place. You know, a lot of the time, sometimes Americans come in for negative criticism when you travel abroad, but Alaska really embodies what you could say is kind of best about the American character. There really is a there's a sort of boldness and an openness and a forthrightness that you won't find in a lot of places. Wow. And, you know, people will greet you and talk to you eagerly, whether they've known you all their life or whether they've met you seconds ago on the Alaska Marine Highway ferry, you know, heading up the Inside Passage. It almost sounds like a cliche, you know, in many cases. But in, in Alaska, it really is true that it is the people more than anything that make it a remarkable place to, to visit or to live. So if you wished you lived in the 1800s in some wild west town, you end up in Alaska in a lot of ways, huh? It, it certainly is a place that there things are in flux. There's a real sort of dynamism. Communities are still sort of figuring out the way that they're going to coexist with or in the wilderness. And there's a real sense of attention, both, both good and bad, between humans and mother nature. And whenever I travel now to the lower 48, I always, I feel a bit, my spirit, I have to say, is a little bit sapped sometimes because that tension creates a kind of an invigoration that doesn't exist, I think, in places that have kind of become more domesticated. Now, part of it must have to do with population sparsity. Uh, in the United States, I think the average density is 80 people per square mile. And in Alaska, it's about one person per square mile. Does that contribute to it? Yeah, no question about it. I mean, it in some ways, it's because of the the rarity of people and the bigness of nature that I think it kind of has a, a humbling effect mm. on people in a way. It's sort of like, uh, you know, what you get in lower 48, perhaps if you climb up a mountaintop or you, you go out at night and look up at the stars and you kind of realize you're your relatively small place in the bigger scheme of things. Well, in Alaska, all you have to do often is walk out your back backyard or, for goodness sake, look out your front window, even if you're inside. Wow. And yeah. uh, so I know the grandeur and the gigantitude of the landscape is a constant reminder to you of sort of what matters and what doesn't. And I find that to be remarkably a healthy thing to have around you, reminding you all the time. Wow, gigantitude. That's it, isn't it? That could be the state uh, motto or something. And it also, it just makes you be thought-provoking about our place on this planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, gigantitude, you know, hunks of a glacier falling down the size of a house. You got 800-pound bears snaring salmon in midair. You got alpenglow on these incredible mountains. Uh, tell me about some of your favorite natural experiences when, uh, when somebody's dreaming about Alaska. What can they make part of their, uh, rather than a travel dream, what can they make their reality? Well, certainly, probably the, the reality that the, the plurality, the greatest number of people make, uh, and the reason why Seattle uh, is known as the gateway to Alaska is because of the trip through the Inside Passage. And that really is, that really is kind of the accessible Alaska. And the fact that it's done by hundreds of thousands, maybe a, a million people a year, doesn't diminish, I think, in the slightest, the remarkableness and even sort of the humbling quality that nature has when you go through the Inside Passage. It can be done really on a, you know, it's not uh, extremely cheap, but um, relatively speaking, it can be done almost on a budget and, uh, you know, can only take a week or two out of one's time. And yet it literally opens up a world that uh, most people couldn't really fathom existed. So that's a legitimate introduction to Alaska then, taking the seven-day state ferry trip from Bellingham up? Yeah, absolutely. One can simply stay on the ferry the entire way, or one can get off in the various communities, or one can simply kind of, in a, in a lot of ways, especially if you take the ferry, really meet a cross-section of Alaskans en route, because it's not it's not just a way for tourists to travel up the Inside Passage, but it's the way that a lot of the people in these isolated little fishing communities or mining and logging outposts do their commuting, as it were. And so there's really a, a rubbing of elbows with a cross-section of Alaskana that you'll find on the state ferry. It's kind of like a postal boat then going from town to remote town, and it's the way that people commute. Very much so. It's It really is the milk run. I noticed in your book on the proposed itineraries, Bellingham is sort of like the border town of Alaska because that, that route works in it. That's the gateway, the jumping-off point from the lower 48, uh, Bellingham in, in the state of Washington. 
Yeah, exactly. The, the southern terminus of the Alaska uh, Marine Highway Ferry System. All right. I'm talking with Aaron Spitzer, and Aaron's from Yellowknife, which is the capital of the Northwest Territories uh, in the north of Canada. And Aaron has written the uh, Lonely Planet Guide to Alaska. Aaron, you've got the uh, seven-day ferry run from Washington State, and then you also have the Great Alcon Highway. Tell me about the, the Great Alcan Highway. Well, a lot of people have probably heard of the Alaska Highway, and I think in this in this age where most of the time when you get in a car, you're you're doing something as lowly as a, a commute or, you know, at best, you're maybe taking a Sunday drive for fun. The Alaska Highway is one of those rare instances when when you can really have an adventure even while you're sitting down behind the wheel. It, it's certainly more tame than it was 50 years ago when it was first carved out of the Northwest as a as a staging route to help defend Alaska during World War II. Regardless, it takes one through an almost completely uninhabited landscape. You can do the drive in anywhere between, you know, perhaps five days to many people will take the entire summer and go very slowly up the Alaska Highway. It makes the the Northwest wilderness extremely accessible, and and yet it doesn't diminish the wilderness in any way. So this is the Alaska-Canada Highway, and it starts at Dawson Creek, right? Yeah, technically, the the start of the highway, Mile Zero, is at Dawson Creek in in uh, northeastern British Columbia. From there, it it very quickly winds its way into the the mountains of British Columbia in Canada, and goes through a, a couple. Uh, one might almost argue that scenically, the most stunning part of the Alaska Highway is encountered fairly directly after one begins. There are uh, two provincial parks in northern British Columbia, Muncho Lake and. Uh, Summit Lake Provincial Parks in BC. The road is quite a roller coaster and there's sort of jagged mountain scenery and a real kind of alpine country that envelops you and wildlife quite literally oftentimes grazing right in the roadway. It's a proper kind of introduction into what you'll get as the Alaska Highway unfurls even farther ahead of you as you head northward. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick. That's our phone number, and radio at ricksteves.com. That's our email address. We'd love to hear from you on travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
It's Travel with Rick Steves and Aaron Spitzer, who writes the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Alaska as our guest as we consider adventures in Alaska. We've got some uh, callers on the line, and I'd like to get them in on the conversation. Uh, Elizabeth in Sacramento, thanks for your call. Hi. Um, Yeah, I visited my brother in Homer a few years ago for Thanksgiving, and I want to go back to Alaska, and um, Homer had so much character, and I was wondering about other small towns that have lots of character or if um, Homer's really unique. Um, Also... My brother said that during this summer, it's packed with motorhomes. <laughs> and so maybe the reason I had the experience that I had was that I was there in off-season during November. So I was just wondering about um, ways to get more of that character. Right. Well, if, if you were in Homer, whether you were in the off-season or the on-season, you experience what is, in many ways, one of the quintessence of uh, an Alaskan community. A lot of people kind of consider Homer a real sort of northern Shangri-La almost. As you know, it's kind of at the end of the road on the Kenai Peninsula, and it seems to welcome a new set of pilgrims every summer who, who've heard kind of the travelers' tales about that place. Obviously, Homer is uh, it has a, an interesting combination of access to the wilderness and an incredibly vibrant arts and culture and culinary scene. Despite its fairly small population, it really is almost the cultural capital of South South Central Alaska in some ways. There are other small communities like that that, that sort of uh, provide that blend. One of them up in the interior uh, is the the fairly famous and growing more famous town of Talkeetna. It's the staging area for mountain climbing trips up the North America's highest peak, Denali. It's also tacitly acknowledged to have been the inspiration for the television show Northern Exposure. But uh, it has a, a sort of a rollicking combination of what you would consider kind of backwoods bush rat type of people, bush plane pilots, and daredevil extreme mountaineers, and just sort of... Uh, a real kind of nonconformist population, all set in this beautiful kind of lush, uh, wooded river valley with some of the most remarkable views of the uh, Alaska Range, the Denali, uh, and its surrounding peaks looming up to the north of that. Aaron, is that so we get to write Talkeetna, T-A-L-K-E-E-T-N-A? That's right. It's about a two hours by road north of the largest city, Anchorage. So it's oh, okay. actually qu- quite accessible to people in this city as well. I think most people are going to check out the famous big cities, but Homer and Talkeetna, that's where you get the character and the, the funky community. And also, did you say you like developed sort of cuisine scene? Homer is especially is quite remarkable. It seems to have almost become a, a refuge for a lot of urban chefs who've decided that uh, they've had enough of the rat race and they want to they want to eat well and cook well in kind of a mountainous uh, vastness. So they've taken up refuge in Homer and found that they can actually make a go of running high-end restaurants with excellent cuisine in a town of 4,000 people at the wow. end of the Kenai Peninsula. So more than spam and salmon jerky. For sure. Elizabeth, thanks for your call. Yeah, thank you. And Bob in Bowling Green, Ohio. Bob, thanks for your call. Hello. Hello. We're going to Alaska this coming summer, and I would like to ask your guest, basically, when is, during the summer months, when is the best time to go, when's the worst time to go, and in a two-week period, what highlights would he really recommend for a person who may not ever get back to Alaska to see? So that's your basic classic, I got two weeks for Alaska, I want to obviously hit the big things, but uh, use my time wisely, and what's the best season? Exactly. All right, Aaron. Yeah, let's let's start with the with the timing. As the last caller actually acknowledged, Alaska is getting parts of it at least very busy in the summertime with RVers and even with the the Alaska population itself growing. A lot of people are doing sort of internal traveling in the state. So some places at some times in peak season really are, uh, one might say, sort of too too busy now to enjoy the wilderness. If uh, you know you don't have the mobility to kind of get off into the mountains backpacking or something like that. The shoulder seasons are still remarkably good, and and I would have to say that the least appreciated shoulder season would be early in the season, either uh, the month of May, some places on into early June. It tends to be the driest part of the year in Alaska, especially in, in southeast Alaska, the Inside Passage area, yet the throngs of people haven't started coming up by that time. School is not out, and so a lot of the summer traveling hasn't begun. So I would really have to advocate travel in the state, particularly in May. Winter will have released its grip, but the throngs of RVers haven't arrived yet. 
So the the peak season is July and August, and then May and like September would be what you call shoulder. Exactly. And then for the two week, just a quick rundown on on the um, sort of classic itinerary. How would you allocate uh, for somebody who's admittedly just going to go there once and wants to see have the best experience? I would start with a week, perhaps in the Inside Passage. I would try to see places like Glacier Bay National Park, as famous as it is. It's not over trafficked, and it's certainly not over hyped. It is as stunning as the the sort of the stereotype of the glaciers calving into the sea and and the whales breaching in front of those calving glaciers would have you believe. And a lot of the inside passage towns, places like Juneau and Skagway, which is famous for being the trailhead of the 1898 gold rush, for instance, they're stunningly scenic and they have sort of a historical resonance as well that, that really will stick with you. Then, perhaps for the second week on up into the interior, a lot of people spend a lot of time in Denali National Park. It's extremely well visited. However, the park is well regulated so that at any given time within the park, there's a fairly low impact of people. People are really well spread out. And they're probably nowhere in Alaska where wildlife is more accessible and where the mountain scenery is uh, potentially more stunning than from the park road into Denali National Park. So that's interesting to me, looking at the map here, Aaron, the panhandle, is that what you call it, southeast Alaska? Alaskans will call it southeast, but in the lower 48, it it (laughs) still is called the panhandle. Okay. Well, the panhandle looks just like a little bit of snipped off of British Columbia, basically. And there you got so much history, and you actually got Glacier Bay, so some of the uh, incredible natural wonders. And then it's quite a hop over to Anchorage, and a little farther north, you get to Talkeetna, which would be your gateway to the Denali National Park. So basically divide your time between the southeastern little panhandle and its history and, and scenic wonders, and then your Denali area in the in the interior. And that would be, you think, the most exciting two weeks. Without knowing more of the, the specifications, uh, you know, for the travelers, there are obviously certain places, if you have certain sure. travelers' interests, that I would, you know, focus on perhaps instead. But for the, for the general interest traveler, those are probably the two highlights. And then try to avoid July and August if you uh, want to have less crowds. Yeah, if you're planning to stay on the road system, you're going to run into a lot of crowds in July and August. But of course, if you're, you know, if you're a river tripper or a mountain climber or a backpacker or just somebody who's willing to kind of brave a, a dusty dirt road instead of staying on the pavement, you know, 12 months a year in Alaska, you can get off in the middle of nowhere and never see another soul. Now, it's boom and bust for a lot of the tourist industry. You know, it's expensive anyways. I would imagine it's really expensive in July and August and it gets a little more moderate in shoulder season. That's true as well, yeah. All right, Bob, thanks for your call. Thank you. Could I have one more question? What uh, about the uh, the cruise packages where you go up and you spend some time cruising and then, you know, then have a chance to do some tourism things? Um, are those any good? There are a range of cruise packages really for, for anyone's interest. There are some cruise packages that really sort of cater to the standard cruiser where you could ha- almost have all of your amusements on board the ship and simply enjoy the scenery and, and never even get off in any of the towns, I suppose. Nah. There are some cruise ships that are the small boat expedition style cruises that can literally tuck into all the little fjords and get up next to the glaciers and get up closer to wildlife. Those would, of course, be quite a bit more expensive, but they would give you a much more intimate sort of relationship with the Alaskan backcountry, and and you obviously wouldn't be on a ship with a thousand other people as well. So it's uh, sort of based on how much one wants to pay and what sort of um, trip one wants to have, but the cruising industry is extremely well-developed and very diversified, particularly in the Panhandle area. So uh, if one gets online or goes to one's travel agent and specifies what you're looking for, there's a whole range of options that can accommodate pretty much any, any kind of traveler out there. Thank you very much. Good luck, Bob, in your travels. Thanks for your call. I'm talking with Aaron Spitzer, and Aaron's the uh, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Alaska. It's great to have Aaron with us. Uh, We're on the phone with him from Yellowknife up in the Northwest Territories of Canada. Aaron, let's talk just for a minute about some practicalities. Uh, Getting around, you mentioned in your book a flight seeing tour on Flight 66. Uh, It sounds like that's almost like a a puddle jumper sort of commuter route or something. Uh, what, What does that mean, flight seeing? In a state where, uh, I'm not sure what the percentage would be, but a fairly small fraction of the land surface is actually road accessible, planes are the way to get around in a lot of places in Alaska. I think the percentage of people with pilot's licenses in Alaska is some order of magnitude higher than it is in any uh, place in the lower 48. And flight seeing is the way to get up in the air and have a lot of the wilderness accessible to you, and especially in places like Denali National Park area, it's extremely popular 
to um, get aboard a little bush plane. Often these are sort of just little three or four seaters. Sometimes they're ski equipped actually and can actually land on, for instance, the shoulders of Denali, of Mount McKinley, and actually land on the glaciers. Oftentimes they don't. They simply fly over. These little planes have remarkable sort of maneuverability and can really kind of get you up close and personal with some of the staggering scenery that you wouldn't see otherwise unless you were a high-altitude alpinist. Hmm. Those would be like your typical sightseeing uh, excursions you'd book from a, a tourist sort of city. What about planes that are like the, the lifeline connecting remote communities? Most of western Alaska, what what's called the bush essentially in Alaska, is that area which is beyond the road system, and that consists of well over a hundred mostly small communities, the vast majority of them being Eskimo or uh, Athabascan Indian communities. For most of them, most of the time, the way to get uh, between them or to the urban centers is by small airplane. Uh, hmm. In the wintertime, the land often opens up by a snowmobile, by skidoo, mm -hmm. and there's some boating between communities in the summertime. But it's the bush plane that really opened up Alaska in a lot of ways, and it remains the lifeline, whether it's visiting family or getting to the big city to get your groceries or... Right. Uh, what have you, or even sports teams traveling between schools. They Instead of getting on the school bus, there'll be a charter flight into a little community, and they'll fly to the next little community over to have their basketball game and then fly back. Wow. Uh, of course, people go there to see the uh, great natural wonders, but there's also uh, a native culture that a lot of people would be interested in seeing. Is the Eskimo and the Indian culture, is that besieged? Uh, do they still speak their traditional languages? Are there centers where you'll find the culture actually alive, or is it all on stage in touristy kind of shows? There's a real combination. Certainly in southeast Alaska, for the large uh, cruise ships, there will be a lot of Tlingit Indian um, cultural performances and demonstrations. These are organized and orchestrated by the, the aboriginal groups, and the money flows back to them. And it shouldn't necessarily be assumed that simply because they're being done for the tourists that they're mm -hmm. in any way inauthentic. If people are worried about the authenticity of sort of their cultural experience, particularly in what they're purchasing, for instance, one will find lots and lots of Aboriginal arts and trinkets in the gift shops. In many cases, their source obviously will be labeled. And it could be said that as far as responsible tourism, people should pay attention to what the, what the actual source is of their gifts and try to buy locally and authentically made things. More so um, than a lot of places, certainly, Aboriginal culture is still very vibrant in Alaska. In a lot of places, especially in the bush, the uh, native languages are the, the first language, and you can still find lots of elderly people in Alaska who do not speak English, for whom the Aboriginal language is their only language. And there's still a very interrelated sort of relationship that the people have with the environment around them. And they subsist, by and large, off of trapping and fishing in many places. Are there still actually schools, public schools, that are taught in a native language? It's, it's not so much whether there still are, but more and more there are. There was a period, obviously, uh, I think very much like the lower 48, of an attempt to integrate the Aboriginal population, I suppose, by forcibly teaching English. But more and more, especially in the younger grades, the Aboriginal languages are being taught in addition to English, of course, but it's been recognized that schools sort of have a role in cultural preservation and that indeed cultural preservation can kind of help academic performance in in the other arts. If people associate their, their schooling experience with their culture, then they'll feel better about it overall. That makes sense. There's the uh, World Eskimo and Indian Olympics each July in Fairbanks. Have you ever been to that? I haven't been to it, but uh, I, I've heard I've heard great things about it. It's a long-standing tradition. I think it reaches all the way back to 1960. Nowadays, it brings um, Inuit or Eskimo people from throughout the circumpolar north, from as far west as the the Chukchi Peninsula in Siberia, and from as far east as Greenland, and of course from Arctic Canada as well. Wow, circumpolar! I haven't heard that word, but there's an actual sort of solidarity among Arctic people. There is. The the Arctic regions have a lot of similarities that, I mean, Alaska in some ways is bonded with northern Canada or Siberia in, in ways that it's not with the lower 48. I mean, there, there are parts of Alaska where people's families are literally split between Alaska and Siberia, for instance, the Diomede Islands and the Bering Strait. So there, there are ties of, there, there are political ties, obviously, with other polar nations, but in some ways there are even familial and certainly cultural ties. Wow, fascinating. You can learn more about that in uh, Aaron's book. Aaron Spitzer is the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Alaska. 
We have Bob on the line from Lake Zurich in Illinois. Bob, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, Aaron and Rick, for taking my call. Um, my wife and I are thinking of planning a trip to Denali National Forest uh, National Park, and we're into the outdoor activities with uh, hiking and cycling. Uh, I'm into photography. And was just wondering, uh, one of the questions I think has already been answered, that being when the best time to go and avoid some of the uh, vans and other people who are there. But was wondering uh, if that would be a, a preferable place to go to do some of those activities or if there's some other places outside the mainstream to enjoy hiking and other outdoor activities. You mentioned both Denali National Forest and uh, Denali National Park. Actually, it's not Denali National Forest, but it's Denali State Park which State is Park, south yeah. of uh, Denali National Park. If you were wanting to get off the mainstream and you were you know, willing to kind of enter the backcountry and, and genuinely get away from people for everything from a day to weeks at a time, a lot of people sort of recommend Denali State Park. It's sort of on the south side of the Alaska Range Mountains. It has a number of developed or at least established hiking trails in a way that the National Park doesn't. The National Park is officially... Uh, trailless, so except for a few trails, it's kind of open tundra, and they discourage the creation of trails. Denali State Park has a number of extensive hikes, and you're much less likely to interact with other people, or you certainly won't run into the crowds. And the opportunities to view mountains and wildlife, and uh, you know, have quality fishing and things like that, are all probably at least as good in the state park. Bob, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. You bet. Aaron, on your last research trip updating your Lonely Planet Guide to Alaska, what was your favorite discovery? My favorite discovery was probably one that most people perhaps wouldn't necessarily find their favorite. It was driving up what they call the, the Hall Road or the Dalton Highway. And that's the road that was carved essentially from Fairbanks north to the Arctic Slope for the creation of the Prudhoe Bay supergiant oil field. It was, it was created obviously for an industrial purpose, but... If the Alaskan is a road trip adventure, then the Hall Road is is that times 10, I suppose. It's still not one to be taken lightly, even though it is just a drive. Where it ends up is the community of Dead Horse, which is kind of a service center for the Prudhoe Bay oil fields. And if ever you could drive to some place that felt like it was the end of the earth, it was driving to Dead Horse and arriving on the Arctic coast in the beginning of July, and yet the temperature was probably in the high 30s Fahrenheit, intense blowing winds, pelting rain that was on the verge of snow and fog coming off the Arctic Ocean, and this uh, warren of gravel pads and heavy machinery racing about uh, in an oil field with ice essentially hanging in the Arctic Ocean just offshore. You could have convinced me that I'd woken up on another planet when I drove into town. A travel memory I'm sure you'll never forget. Indeed. We've been talking with Aaron Spitzer, and Aaron uh, writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Alaska. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Whether you're exploring the vast wonders of Alaska or staying closer to home, road tripping with children is always an adventure. Up next, Lonely Planet guidebook author Jeff Campbell shares his tips on enjoying a family car vacation. How do you make a road trip with kids one that everyone will long remember for all the right reasons? Hey, the answer's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Bonjour, je m'appelle Arnaud Servignat, j'habite à Paris, donc je suis donc parisien et je voyage avec Rick Steve. So I just said hello, my name is Arnaud Servignat, I live in Paris and I travel with Rick Steves. Encore en français, s'il vous plaît. No, no, just the last thing again. So we... Okay, so the last thing, uh, en français. The whole thing? Yeah, just uh, what you said in the beginning, it's just to repeat it one more okay. time. Yeah. Bonjour, je m'appelle Arnaud Servignat. J'habite à Paris et je voyage avec Rick Steves. Merci. That's good. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And uh, we're going to talk about one of the great challenges of traveling. We're going to talk about traveling with kids, with little children. And I've got with me a man who's incorporated that into his travel writing. Jeff Campbell is the lead author for the Lonely Planet Guide to the United States. And uh, talk about road tripping and road tripping with kids. We've got a man who's done it. Jeff was born in Texas, grew up in New Jersey, uh, schooled in New York, and then uh, 
says he fled twice as a young man to London, to Greece, and, and then he went up to Alaska, and he ended up in San Francisco, where he's uh, working as a travel writer for Lonely Planet with uh, his wife and their two kids. He's got a two-year-old and a six-year-old. Jeff Campbell, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. So, Jeff, did you write guidebooks for traveling before you had kids, or what came first, the travel or the kids? The travel itself certainly came first, but I, I decided that I would start to uh, write as a travel writer just about a year before we had our first, before we had our son. So it wound up happening that the kids and travel, travel writing that is, happened at about the same time. Did you and your wife take one sort of desperate last trip before you had your first kid? <laughs> <laughs> like we did? Uh, yes. And ma- as a matter of fact, my mother lives in France. And uh, we took a trip to, uh, to France and ha- had a nice last fling in Europe. And then you had kids, and, and what happened? Did you, did you kind of uh, decide to stop traveling for a while, or how did your travel change after you had kids? Well, um, it shortened for the most part. Uh, we took shorter trips. We didn't go as far away. But I've incorporated my kids in every time, every book that I've done for Lonely Planet. I've had them come out for some portion of the, the research. I, I wanted to do that for two reasons, one to be with my family, and the other is um, I thought that that would benefit the, the guides tremendously to, to travel in sort of different ways as a single person than as, as, a, as a family. That's interesting, because when you think of Lonely Planet, you think of people f- far from parenting. You think of footloose and fancy-free backpackers all over the globe, and now a, a, a lot of us uh, backpackers are uh, backpacking diapers and bottles and that sort of thing. And did Lonely Planet, which is must be the planet's biggest uh, travel publisher, did they actually encourage you to incorporate tips for traveling with uh, kids into your guidebook? It's been, a, it's been a focus of their guidebooks for a while. Baby boomers are aging, so um, they have kids, but they don't want to stop traveling. So they have tried to expand the audience that they're speaking to so that it's not just backpackers and hostile travel and all that, but, but uh, incorporating people who still want to go out and see the world uh, on a budget or, or not. So they didn't ask me to bring my family along, but it was certainly um, appropriate. For, for the needs of the guide. I think the founder of Lonely Planet, Tony Wheeler, and his wife, Maureen, set a good uh, standard there. I know they travel with their kids routinely, and Maureen even wrote a book mm-hmm. on uh, traveling with children, which is an excellent That's right. book. Is that book still yes, in print? It is. Uh, it is. I think she might have handed over the reins of updating it, but it's, uh, it's kid, still in print. Kids are probably in college by now. Tell me the last road trip you took with your, with your, uh, with your child. Or your son, um, or your as I said, I've traveled with my kids a great deal, usually short trips. We decided this last summer that we would take a big trip. So we spent, we decided we'd take 12 days and do a kind of quintessential road trip. We, we shortened our, our sights. Instead of going across the whole country, we went from San Francisco to Minneapolis. took about 12 days. And uh, it, was, it was a humbling experience because I thought that I knew about uh, traveling with kids, and I learned a whole lot more. Jeff, you said it was a humbling experience. How's that? You know, having done a fair bit of traveling myself, I put together my itinerary and I thought through every day and I, you know, planned it out very carefully and closely and thought that I planned it slow enough and with, you know, times to rest and friends to visit on the way and things to see. And very quickly what I learned was that my itinerary was, was inappropriate to the needs of our family in terms of how we needed to travel. That's a lesson you learn is uh, you got to honestly incorporate the kids' needs into the itinerary. Uh, it's an adjustment parents generally need one or two trips to get the reality check. It's why it's good to take a couple of short trips before you take a long trip. One of the things I think I learned was that there's a significant difference between a short trip and a long trip. Having taken a number of trips that were sort of four to seven days, there were aspects of taking a longer trip that just needed, needed more attention. Um, one of them was food. We packed the car up with just a ton and ton of snacks, and uh, we didn't really think about bringing a whole lot of food food, and it turned out very quickly that that, that was a mistake as well because we would roll into a, a place a little bit late because I'd had a little too much on my itinerary, and uh, it was a struggle in the, at, at the end of a day to, to try and find a restaurant and to get the kids to eat, and they had, were sort of overtired. and. It took us about a week into the trip before we sort of found the rhythm of this particular trip. So this is humbling, Jeff, because I'm, by the way, I'm talking with Jeff Campbell, the uh, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to the United States of America. Great road traveler, has a kid, tries to do a road trip, humbling experience. We all learn. There's, there's really, <laughs> it's the school of hard knocks, isn't it? There's, you've traveled for six years with your children now. Is there a guidebook yes. where you can learn from somebody else's mistakes? 
Uh, yes, yes. Uh, there's, there's. Uh, well, there are a number of uh, guidebooks out there for uh, traveling with children. As, what do you recommend? You mentioned, well, Lonely Planets Travel with Children, I think, is an excellent guide. Photos and Fromars also publish ones. There's, there's a whole bunch. There's a couple of actually web resources online that, that uh, I found are nice. They publish newsletters, and it's a lot of parents talking to parents about places to travel and how to travel and lots of the 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 little pieces of advice that make a big difference. For me, there's two kinds of traveling with kids. Traveling with uh, little kids who probably aren't contributing to their uh, ability to do well in their history classes at this point. Mm. It's just trying to get from one rest stop to the next and keep everybody right. happy. And then there's the older kids that you want to incorporate into the planning and, and that are going to be uh, turned on to different aspects of history or culture and the, and, and, uh, the wonders of the world. Seven seven three 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 rick That's our number. And you can add to our conversation anytime in our website at ricksteves.com. Yes, Mary Lee, we roll along, roll along, roll along. Mary Lee, we roll along, my fair lady. And I believe we've got somebody on the line in Dallas, Texas, who's interested in traveling with the little ones. Julie, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking it. Um, do you have any suggestions for parents with toddlers? Like, how old are you thinking there? Um, she'll be a year and a half when we we're planning to go somewhere, so. Jeff, you've done that. Oh, yes, uh, several times. The advice for how to travel or where to travel? Well, actually, both. Um, we're pretty open. We're in Dallas, so we're right in the middle of the country. We could kind of go anywhere. For myself, most of the trips that I've taken have been uh, to the west, so I would suggest going heading west, either into the desert or into the mountains. I'm a big fan of national parks, so there's lots of great trips that you can take in which you can string together three or four or even five national parks over the course of a week uh, in the West. Do the little kids actually enjoy those? You know, they can, and you were, you were saying about how uh, it's really the, only, the older kids that you would want to talk about a trip and where you're going. Um, I find that actually even young kids, even toddlers, it's good to talk about where you're going and what you're doing the older they get, the more they remember of what you're saying. But it does spark their curiosity, and it does help in terms of the are-we-there-yet syndrome to be able to explain to them all the places you're stopping so that the end of the, you know, the, the ultimate destination is not all that they're thinking about. They're thinking about every day and stops along the way. What I found with toddlers, actually, from six months to one and a half years, it's almost the easiest to travel with. Uh, for my, for myself and my own experience, um, simply because they tend to be the most physically demanding. You have diapers and, and lots of needs mm -hmm. to care for them, but they get along fairly well. They sleep in the car a good bit. If you time your driving for their naps and uh, make sure to stop for a good couple of hours once they wake up from a nap, wherever you are, then actually they, they travel very well. They, they go along very well. Julie, what are um, your tips for... Uh long times in in the car with the little toddlers? Oh, well, I, that's kind of why I called, because it's, other than a couple of trips, um, maybe like three-hour trips, we haven't done a long week with, with her in the car. We've flown, and it's getting more expensive to fly, and you can bring less and less on the, on the planes. So we're trying to do a road trip with her, maybe like a week. I don't think any longer than a week I could handle that, um, because she's too young for DVDs and video games. But she's too old to sleep the whole the whole trip. So that's kind of why I called, is to get some ideas. So, Jeff, uh, how do you keep the kids busy uh, and occupied at that age? How do you keep them entertained? Uh, well, for, for the toddlers, actually, uh, music and stories on tape are, are brilliant. And uh, we, we drove many, many miles listening to uh, Dr. Seuss stories in the car this summer. And uh, both our five-year-old son and our one-year-old daughter, who was about one and a half when we took our, our two-week trip, enjoyed it and were, and were amused by that. Snacks are also huge. We had an email from Leah in uh, Elsa, Illinois, and she's got a membership in a ACM Children's Museum. And uh, hmm. that means they can stop at children's museums anywhere in the country for free. They live in St. Louis. They've uh, enjoyed museums all the way from New York to Portland to Grand Rapids. Have you ever heard of that museum pass? I have not heard of that particular pass. Sounds uh, like a great thing where you can just stop for a little children's entertainment and stimulation along the way. I imagine that comes with a little handbook that shows you where all the children's museums are. According to Leah, that's the ACM Children's Museum membership. 
another uh, email from Lisa in Arkansas. A great road trip with or without kids is the scenic drive up through the Ozarks of Arkansas. This area boasts mm. one of the cleanest natural drives in our country. From Mountain View in Arkansas up to Branson in Missouri, it's a natural landscape masterpiece. That sounds interesting. From Lisa in Arkansas. Well, Julie, I hope you have some good luck exposing your kids to our beautiful country um, from a ripe old age of two. Thank you for your help. Thanks for your call. I'm speaking with Jeff Campbell. He's the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to the USA. Jeff, where the big challenge for any parent taking their kids on the road is how to pass time in the car. Uh, you know, road trip by definition is lots of time in the car. Oh, yeah. What are some of the best tips that you can uh, review just for helping uh, the family uh, maintain a little sanity and enjoy themselves together <laughs> on a long road trip? Yes, one's sanity is sorely tested on a road trip. It's a good, uh, it's a good, good test of one's own uh, patience. A lot of it has to do with, uh, I think that when, as, as a parent, you want to expose your child to the world. One of the exciting things is to share your love of travel and your sense of, of wonder at the world. Um, and, and a child is pretty much just interested in what's in it for them. <laughs> and so a lot of a lot of successful road trips depend on um, breaking down the moments for the child into much smaller pieces that they can manage, which is thinking up destinations along the way, whether it be a, a, a park or just some interesting thing that is only an hour away that you can stop at and see or anticipate. Another is that if you're in the car, and driving for a long time to bring along something that can kind of be doled out along the way. This On this last trip that we took, we had some gifts that we were going to sort of give out every other day or something like that, so they would have something new to play with, both the kids. And one of them that turned out to be sort of the winner were these uh, tattoos. And we, uh, just on the spur of them, on an on a, on a inspirational whim, I said, well, at every stop, we'll, uh, you can have a new tattoo. And so the, both the kids just love this and they did this and they would think of while we were driving they would think about which tattoo was going to be uh, that they would do at the next right. stop. It was a very good way to sort of keep them engaged and keep them interested. Um, of course they did look like uh, bikers by the time we got to South Dakota. <laughs> that's a great idea of just stumbling onto something that works for you and, and who'd have thunk that that'd be a brilliant idea but that sounds very clever to give them a, a dole out little goodies as you go through the different various stops. Boy, I, just when you're talking about thinking of the kids in relation to the adult stops, I remember in, in Europe with our little tiny kids you know, if mm -hmm. there happened to be a children's playground outside of a great museum, the carousel in the park with the little French kids yes. was just as yes. much a pleasant memory yes. for the entire family as as the Monet Museum itself. So it really it's important to develop uh, some parenting eyes when you sort through all the wonders that you as an adult want to enjoy on your trip. Uh, Jeff, you've, uh, you've done a lot of traveling in California, as that's your home base. Yes. Uh, what's, your, what's your favorite place to take the, the kids on a road trip in California? Up and down the coast, essentially. I, I love Highway 1. It's very easy to find stuff that's interesting for the kids along the coast. Uh, the other that really tops the list is Yosemite and the, the mountains up there. Wow. Now, for, for years, I've been joking that if you've got a, a trip planned, the best place to take your kids is to Grandma and Grandpa's on the way to the airport. And, uh, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, all of us parents, we joke about that. But uh, in retrospect, uh, some of the richest travel experiences we've had is with our kids on the road far from home. Apparently to you also, it's, it's worth the trouble. What's, what's something that you and your wife would get together and remember very fondly from a road trip uh, between all the diaper stops? Well, it's hard to pick one. I would... On this last trip, one moment that really stood out for me was we had gotten to the Grand Tetons and we were exhausted. It was that had been the end of our first week and we were just sort of at our wits end as to whether we were going to survive this trip. And uh, I had not been able to really take a hike and I, I loved to hike. And so I was just determined. And so I, I got up a little extra early and took my one and a half year old daughter and uh, drove into the Grand Tetons and put her on my back, and we just took a, a morning hike for two hours, kind of first thing in the morning. And she loved it. She loved being in the backpack and on the back. And, uh, you know, we saw a moose, which was just a thrill, as well as all the other little creatures, which interested her just as much as uh, the moose. And we stopped after about an hour and had a little snack just on the side of the trail and then uh, came on back, and it was just the kind of perfect sort of moment and sharing of, of the outdoors and nature that you wish for. And you might only have a couple of those on a trip, but they actually go a long way. There you go. Travel magic, even with a little kid. Especially with a little kid. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jeff Campbell, the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to the USA. Jeff, thanks so much for sharing your experience with Parenting on the Road. Thank you very much. From time to time, we like to read from the travel haiku poems that our listeners send us at Travel with Rick Steves. The radio section of our website has details on submitting an original poem about your travels. Here are some recent submissions that we thought you'd enjoy. James Tuttle Crittenden IV of Sio, Oregon, writes us this haiku about a day on nearby Detroit Lake. Lonely little duck, floating alongside the boat, as Bruce fills the glass. John DeBird of Cincinnati paints us this portrait of coastal Maine. Sailing the sea coast, quaint villages welcome us. Maine, was it a dream? And Dennis Goldsberry is an ophthalmologist in Dallas, Texas, who saw an opportunity to send us this gem he observed from his travels. Tiny hotel soap, too small to wash my body, yet I take you home. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program, listen again in our audio archives, and find links to audio and video podcast features. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show or add your comments in our ongoing message boards. Plus, send us your original haiku poems about your travels or write up a short hometown brag. Details are in the 15 Seconds of Fame link in the radio section of our website. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Stencil, Sonia Grosset, and Rachel Unk, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Thanks to Daryl Eros at CBC North in Yellowknife and to Brian McCabe at WBGO in Newark, New Jersey, for their engineering assistance today. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.